Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm Jason Rugg, filling in for Joshua Lindsay, and joining us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Well, you know, it's Joshua Q. Lindsay, if you yeah. <laughs> Which I think we said last week, but I, I think we just have to leave people in suspense of what his actual middle name is. Yeah, that's like just Yeah, because it's like, you know, Joshua it's like, uh, yeah, Joshua Q. <laughs> or maybe that isn't even actually his middle initial. It's just Joshua with a Q on the end, <laughs> but the Q is silent. Maybe you just never know. If he was French, <laughs> that might be the case. Joshua <laughs> Well, how are you, Christian? Where, wait, so I think last I, last I heard you were headed to New York, no, D.C., then New York. Yes, that is true. Okay. It's been a whirlwind of a few days. Literally, I feel like I've been gone a month, but I don't think it's that long. I think it <laughs> might be a week. I'm not sure. Uh, so, yes, I went to D.C., I went to New York, and I got back yesterday. So as we're recording today, it's um, Friday, May 20th. I am in my home in Chicago, Illinois. Flo and Danny are upstairs decompressing and relaxing. Uh, it has been just an incredible, incredible ride so far. Um, I went to Washington, D.C. Like I said before, we had a screening that was sponsored by Airbus, Michelin, uh, Best Defense Foundation, and Delta. And it was at the Air and Space Museum at the Udvarhazy location in Chantilly, Virginia. And it was a beautiful, beautiful space. The screen, it was an IMAX screen. So I saw the film on a huge screen with a, you know, a good audience. Um, and I was delighted that there were a bunch of French people in the audience. That was really nice. Um, all who were extremely moved. We had World War II veterans there. And I was delighted that the uh, Navy sailor and the nurse from Times Square that were kissing on VE Day showed up to the screening. Not the real ones, of course, not the real ones. Uh, <laughs> the reenactors actually that are in our movie live in the oh, DC wow. area. So Teresa Warner and James Martin, she works for PBS NewsHour and he is a pilot and they met at a swing dancing class. And now they have this life as um, recreating that little moment and helping out. And they were a tremendous blessing. Everyone loved seeing them. They were really like an extension of my staff. I didn't have any help selling DVDs or books. So they were running those for me as I was talking to people. So that was such a blessing. And David Chapman joined us for Jenny Durr. Dur I'm sorry, Virginia. Virginia Durr joined us as well. So it was a, it was a lovely evening. The, um, the uh, France Chamber of Commerce in the DC area uh, was there. I was so excited to meet uh, Denis. And then uh, we had I'm trying to think of all these other, we had just all these other executives that I'd never met before or heard of before from like veterans organizations in the DC area, as well as, you know, government agencies and things like that. So uh, it was a very sweet, wonderful uh, evening. And I wasn't with Danny and Flo at this point, uh, but I was there throughout uh, the weekend, visiting with David Chapman and his family and other people involved in the film, visiting donors. And then on Sunday, I got on a plane. I flew to uh, JFK where I met Virginie Durr and her brother, Pierre, who'd never been to New York before, as well as Flo and Danny. Uh, and they got off the plane glowing like 
you know, they were light bulbs because the Air France, the man in charge of Air France, whose name has escaped me at the moment, uh, he basically gave them this incredible VIP experience where they were in, you know, first class with a companion. So a woman named Veronique, who works for Air France, met them in the airport and basically was their uh, guide all the way you know, till we got to our hotel in New York, they were just incredibly happy to be here. So excited to be in New York. Um, we, uh, credit Agricole put us up in the Sofa Teal hotel on 44th street, which a beautiful hotel, super relaxing. Um, and then we ate out at the flame diner on 44th street, which is sort of an all night New York diner. Great first experience for them. They had French fries, <laughs> I guess they had been so uh, well-fed on the Air France flight. All they wanted was French fries. So, <laughs> And then the next day, we sort of hit the ground running with experiencing New York. We walked through Central Park, which was, you know, just gorgeous, taking lots of pictures and enjoying the beauty. Beautiful day in New York. Uh, we ate at the Sarah Beth's restaurant, which I guess is pretty famous. It was delicious. And then uh, from there, we went and got ready for this event at the French Institute and Alliance Francaise in the Gould Hall Theater. And I got to tell you, it was probably one of the best screenings we have ever had. It was absolutely full. The theater was absolutely full. I think there were probably maybe 250 people there. Very mixed audience from tons of French people but as American Francophiles as well, um, as well as Delta officials, Air France officials, Credit Agricole, you know, people. Uh, there were embassy officials like the general counsel to New York from France was there. And we had a VIP reception beforehand and then the screening. So wow. we were able to meet uh, all of these people that made this thing possible as well as World War II veterans, two World War II veterans that were in attendance. And then um, from there, we went down to the screening. I was able to sort of introduce the film. We did the screening. And the best for me was sitting in the back listening to people experience the film. So they were just laughing so loud. I was just like tickled pink to hear how engaged they were in this film I heard people crying people were talking out loud you know you hear like oh my gosh or I can't believe that or that's incredible and they were just very very engaged and vocal and appreciative and we had a long Q&A afterwards where Danny had her own mic and she got to talk for as long as she wanted so that which happened to be long which was delightful loved it so much David Chapman was there uh, I was told by a couple of people it was the best Q&A we'd ever done wow. so so that was just fantastic. And then the next day, um, we stayed around for two other days just to let Danny and Flo experience New York, which they experienced it completely because we stayed on Roosevelt Island, which is a little spit of land in between Manhattan and Queens that who knew that was there. And it's connected by a tram where you go from Roosevelt Island to, I don't know, 59th Street or 56th Street, something like that. But the tram is in the first Godzilla movie where he's holding oh. this, you know, tram <laughs> in his hand, this red tram. 
Um, so that was exciting for them because they love watching American movies and they've seen so many. So, um, so we stayed on Roosevelt Island. We took the tram. We actually took the subway. That was petrifying for me, del delightfully fun for them because they were so curious. Um, but what they did learn about New York is that everything is super far away and you either have to walk, which is very rigorous, or you have to take a cab, which is very expensive, or you have to take a subway, which is very confusing. I don't know if you've ever been in the subway in New York, but I mean, I don't know how many times I got lost in Central Park for crying out loud. I had my GPS trying to figure that out which way I'm going. And the GPS is like spinning around. Like I have no idea why my GPS wasn't working, but it was, it was challenging. I think that's what they walked away with from New York is that yes, it's wonderful and exciting, but it's incredibly challenging to navigate, super expensive. Um, it smells and is dirty. Uh, they <laughs> couldn't believe all the trash all over the place. Uh, the buildings were super tall. They said they'd never really been around buildings that tall because in Paris, they have, they're just not that tall. They don't have skyscrapers other than the Eiffel Tower, I guess. So wow. all of that was new. Um, and we had, I had some delightful friends that were my phone a friend for figuring out how to get to New York. Diana Florence, who's a native New Yorker, and Tracy Schlachter, my good friend from high school, who also is works for HBO, was entrenched there. She took us to HBO. So as you can imagine, that was just a highlight for them. They saw all these Emmy awards that they had won and, you know, oh, wow. their movie posters that they recognized all over the place. So um, they have a great view from Hudson Yards. We went to the edge, which is this unbelievable like experience in Hudson Yards where you are hanging over like in Chicago, except it's really outside. And so the windows are split. You can put your hand through the window oh, and wow. it's, and then there's like a section in the floor where you can absolutely look straight down and see it's petrifying. Um, <laughs> and oh my goodness, there's this crazy option where you can go even higher and it's called a climb and you can like be on a um, repel have like this repelling suit on and they hang you out over the edge either forwards <laughs> or backwards I don't know what kind of insane crazy people want to do that but they did and we were watching that in horror so <laughs> did uh did you go to the Highland or the Highline Park I did go to the Highline I totally want to it was near there that's one um, of my favorite places in New York City is I've heard this it's so cool it feels almost like a little bit like you're walking through like an apocalypse because it's old railway raised up, but it's been retaken as a park. And so it almost feels like, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, the like society's gone yeah. and, you know, it's, it's really quiet and it's just, it doesn't feel like you're still in the city. Kind of like the walking dead. A little bit. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, the plants have reclaimed the city, right? Yeah, you're you know, looking but... for the zombies to come out of grass. <laughs> it's a really cool little um, uh, oasis of, of quiet yeah. there. And I was going to say about, about the subway, I think, I don't think anyone who's, who's been to New York uh, for the first time has not got on the subway going the wrong way. <laughs> At least well, once. Right? Is <laughs> Diana told me, you know, exactly. Go down this. You're going to take the four or five train. You're going to take it downtown. So yep. I'm following the signs for downtown, but then there's all these letters, which were never <laughs> mentioned to me. I have no idea what the letters meant. <laughs> and, and, you know, I followed the sign to downtown. I got on the four or five, but it was heading to Brooklyn. Somehow. 
<laughs> and yep. not to Bowling Green Station. Oh, because that's where we were headed. We were headed to go to the Staten Island Ferry. Yet another interesting New York highlight. We wanted to see the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island. And so everybody said, take the Staten Island Ferry. It's free. And But I mean, it took us a long time to take the subway from, you know, Midtown all the way down to, you know, the tip of Manhattan. Oh, yeah. Get on the subway. Wait for the you know ferry get on the ferry ride for half an hour get off wait for the next one ride back for half an hour you know that mall at the other end uh, in staten island's really cool though <laughs> yeah well, i never even got made it that far we just like oh, really? around oh. yeah because we didn't want to go to staten island we just wanted right. to see the statue of liberty they have a beautiful um tribute to uh the twin towers at that mall where it's oh, um if it lines up perfectly with, with where they were on the, uh, if you go over and you stand in just the right spot it's it's like a, a whale's tail and it's, it's it's really beautiful it's really well done that's um, kind of cool i'll have to go back yeah that's um, all i've seen of staten island <laughs> yeah, it was it was neat i really enjoyed the experience especially watching them watch the statue of liberty you know and taking pictures of it and stuff like that so and that was very special. And then Diana Florence took us up. She lives on, I think, 28th Street, took us up to the top of their roof where it's, you know, they had made this oasis and we had wine and cheese and bagels uh, overlooking the you know city where we could see the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building and, you know, stuff like that. So they just were wined and dined by them. And from there, we left and went to the Players Club. Are you familiar with the Players Club? No. <laughs> it sounds naughty, but it's really not, at least that I know of. Um, we went to meet David Patterson. You know who David is. He's yeah. one of our producers, and he lives in Manhattan. He's, as we've talked about before, not only is he a producer, his thing he's most well-known for is Bridge to Terabithia. That actually is his story. His mother wrote uh, he then turned into a screenplay, and it got picked up by Disney and produced. Um and so when that movie came out and, you know, there were proceeds from that, he invested in joining the Players Club. And the Players Club was started by Edwin Booth, who is the more famous but less notorious uh, Booth brother. Uh, the notorious one was John Wilkes Booth. Oh, <laughs> so they were both actors, both, you know, well-known, uh, one more well-known than the other for you know, uh, but he was this very famous actor in New York. And when his brother assassinated Abraham Lincoln, uh, he retired from the acting life and basically went became a recluse because, you know, he didn't want to cause people pain is what he said. So he became a recluse and nobody heard from him for two years until this letter writing campaign uh, where people had, you know, made petitions for him to come back. So he actually came back to the acting scene two years later. He bought this mansion in Gramercy Park, like right on the edge of Gramercy Park. And he turned it into a hangout for all of his artist friends. And so um, writers and actors and dancers and financiers and producers and you know distributors all would hang out at this club. And Mark Twain, I think, was a founding member. There are you know, several like major founding members that hang out there and just about everybody who's anybody in New York City um, in the acting scene are members of the Players Club. So anybody can show up at any time. Uh, in fact, while we were there, Roy Jackson uh, showed up 
and you wouldn't know who he is. He's a working actor, but if you look him up on IMDb, you can look him up, Jason, uh, on IMDb. You'll see he has a, an abundance of credits. Uh, delightful man. Um, and so, so anyway, this Players Club is just so wealthy in history. Like it's been around since the late 1800s. So they have all of these costumes that were donated from Broadway from back then. And he was a big lover of Shakespeare. So there's Shakespeare in quotes all over the place. And back in those days, they would drink out of pewter mugs. And so all the pewter mugs of like the original members are still hanging around the room they have um, another popular thing back in the day were these death masks and so they have the largest collection of death masks in i don't know anywhere like all the way back to oliver cromwell just crazy like things that they have there which those are like when someone dies and they take a cast of their face yeah. so that oh that's yeah. <laughs> They have a collection of them. Why? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But it was a little creepy and kind of cool. And they're in these drawers, like in this old, like built in, you know, case bookshelf. You pull out these drawers and inside are all these like, you know, white death masks with their names and the years. And they go back to the 1800s. It's crazy. That just sounds like. The, the mixins for a horror movie you know like <laughs> like you walk in and there's the pewter mug sitting on the you know the thing yeah. and there's a floating mask and it takes a sip and <laughs> yeah, absolutely it's all there and like the artwork in this place is just so good and all of the like original members or even members today they have their um they have their portrait made by an artist who probably belongs to the club or is hired by the club and they're hanging all over the walls so like there's jimmy fallon there's walter cronkite there's lawrence olivier there's vanessa redgrave you see Catherine hepburn and you know there's autographs by all of these people and you you can just feel this this vibe of this creating life that's there and it was full with people talking and laughing and interacting and it's like you've come in it's like you've come into Edwin Booth's home and everybody's still hanging out there and interestingly enough after a while he turned the top two floors into his private residences so that when all the actors and stuff were hanging out he would just go to bed and just let them party on you know, there's a bar in the basement with a uh, with a grill as well that has phenomenal food. And so, you know, you just the other thing that was brilliant is they have these thing called community tables. And so they're private tables in this little grill, but there's these long community tables that anybody can sit down and have dinner. And if you sit down at these tables, you're saying, I don't I don't mind being bothered. You know, I'm sitting at a community table and it's an open invitation for people to join you. Well, if someone does come in and join you and starts talking to you, they can stay for as long as they want, even if you aren't enjoying their company. If you aren't enjoying their company, you're not allowed to ask them to leave. You have to leave yourself. So it's interesting because it creates this level playing field where 
you know, in this place, you have actors on their way up or producers on their way up or vice versa, you know, and other ones that are on their way down, you know, and so it's, um, everybody is allowed to talk to everybody else. Nobody in there is famous because it's just a place where you hang out and only certain people are there. Although the membership is open to anyone. So anybody can go and join if you want to pay the membership fee. You have to be nominated by two members. And I know this because after I was there for five minutes, I'm like, how do I get into this club? Like, it was so amazing. They have like a theater in there where you can have stage readings and actually do a play. It's great. How much is the fee? Is it I'm right? trying to find out. I don't know <laughs> because there are reciprocal clubs like all over the world, I guess. And so if you join oh. one of them, you're allowed to, you know, be a part of the others. Hmm. So, oh man, it's on my bucket list now. And then, so what was so amazing is that we were with David Patterson. Well, apparently like he's a big dude. Like you, you went, everybody was like, oh, David Patterson, you know, it was like, I was with truly somebody that everyone revered and i two people were like went to shake his hand oh mr patterson i'm so and so i did a a reading of your screenplay you know or i did a reading of your play and i remembered this you know this was so great or whatever uh people were angling to meet him like everybody was trying to come over who hadn't met him but knew of him i guess he's you know got a lifetime membership he's been there since the 90s and uh he was on the board for a while he's helped renovate the place because i think it needs a lot of work and so he was the one he was our tour guide and he just introduced us to all the people he knew and he then took us through the house and showed us everything and then he took us upstairs to the residence where Edwin Booth had lived. And so he took us to his bedroom and in his bedroom, he told us the story of him sitting at the table in the, in the bedroom. It's a big bedroom, like a bedroom with a salon and table and fireplace. So the night he died, he was sitting at the table. He had on a cap and he was smoking a cigar or a pipe. And he had a book that he was reading. It was a lightning storm. And for whatever reason, he passed away. No one knows. Slumped over on the table. The servants came up to find him. Uh, that was the end of Edwin Booth. However, his cap, his pipe, and the book are still on the table. And the room is just like he left it. His slippers were right by the bed. Um, you know, it was just an eerie type of thing, you know, where it looks just like 1898 or whenever it was they passed. I don't know. Um, And then David told us about this creepy story that still sits with Danny, like she told Jeremy about it right away. But uh, apparently at one night, uh, the police of New York came over to Edwin Booth and said, uh, can you please come down to the station? So, of course, he went down to the station and a man in jail said, oh, sir, I've always wanted to be an actor. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, However, I stole a horse Now I'm going to be hanged. And I'm wondering after they hang me, I'd like to donate my skull to you and the, you know, your club. And I would love you to use my skull the next time you do Hamlet, which actually happened. And the Ah. skull is still sitting on the bookcase in his room. And then two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, this killed me. Tom Hanks was there. He came in. He wanted to see the room because he'd heard about it. He went in and crossed over like the barriers that they have, went over to get the the skull and was taking a picture with the skull. 
So, you know, there's just stories like that, just about everything. I mean, there's a poker table there that Mark Twain played poker on along with whatever other founding members were there. It's a pretty darn cool poker table. So um, I took videos of all of this, David talking and us kind of going through this house. And we're going to share them on Patreon at some point because uh, it was just too special of a place not to, not to share. So, yeah, so that was the way we capped off our last night in New York City, which not a bad way to end things, particularly because, oh, go back to Roy Jackson. Have you looked him up? Yeah, he's in like everything. <laughs> I know, I know. What else he in? Oh gosh, uh, let me see if I can. I, sorry, I was looking into the Players Club too. Um, he's known for Blind Spot, Days of Our Lives, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, and First Sunday. But he's in just he's been in like thirty five things. Yeah, I mean he's <laughs> in in Blue Bud Bloods. He's been in yeah the Blacklist. Um, Night yeah, Hawks, the Blacklist. Uh, Orange is the New Black. Yeah uh he's in a lot of days of our lives he's in 20 episodes of days of our lives he played tim yeah and so but he was just the most down-to-earth nicest guy you'd want to ever meet and so he even showed danny you know in flow they asked what he had done and so he showed them his reel uh which had him in all those scenes like with donnie Wahlberg and other famous people you know um and so they were just cuckoo for cocoa puffs over like all of the actors pictures because i knew so many of them and uh you know of course meeting roy so that was a great night great night in new york but danny danny when we were ready to leave she was just like ready to leave you know she was exhausted but she's eight almost 83 she'll be 83 next week and she kicked my butt walking around new york city like <laughs> i don't know what this deal is with her but i wish i had her jeans because she was uh, a little energizer bunny well, that is awesome. It sounds like uh, you need to get back to New York more often and uh, get into the Players Club. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. I think my career would benefit by being a member. Yeah, I think it sounds like once a month. Sounds like almost anyone's career would benefit from being a member. <laughs> I think so. I think so. So anyway, I spent hanging out with David Patterson, obviously. Yeah, that was that was the bomb. I really loved. I love seeing him as element, you know, because I just know him as a as a friend. You know, he reached out to me and said, "Hey, how can I help you?" and um, so I'd never really seen him among his people. So that was great. Awesome. So then we flew back yesterday. Thanks to Delta. We got back home safely. And today we're regrouping. I, when I was in the airport, I was like, what airport am I in? What day is it? <laughs> like I was just, and then I thought we were leaving for Atlanta next Thursday, but we're leaving on Tuesday. So we really have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Uh, that I need to pack and get ready for Normandy and all of these other events that are coming up. So to talk real quick about those, um, we are going to leave on Tuesday at uh, apparently 4 a.m. from my house to catch a 6 a.m. flight. We're going to be heading to Atlanta where a Delta pilot named Chuck Link, uh, who is a podcast listener and a Patreon supporter, thank you, Chuck, is going to meet us at the airport and give us a tour of, um, you know, the, the whole Delta world. I think we make it to fly in a simulator. So that's cool. And then he's going to uh, escort us to Fort Benning and the National Infantry Museum, where we have been confirmed for a screening on the 25th at 6 p.m., uh, the girls are super excited about that because they've never been on an American military base. So that'll be super special for them. And then uh, 
we are thrilled that we get to be part of Jenny Durr's son's wedding on the 27th and 28th. And then once the 29th and 30th roll around, we belong to Delta again. And we've got uh, events for this kickoff charter that Delta is doing with, um, you know, we've got a World War II veteran dinner sponsored by Michelin, tours of uh, Delta, the museum and all of that, meeting all of the veterans who come in on the 30th. And then the 31st, we have, um, you know, the big dinner. And on the first, we leave and we head to Normandy and landing in Deauville with a big reception there. And this snowball has been rolling and gathering all sorts of snow. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so it's kind of been a little overwhelming, quite frankly, um, which is why I wanted to talk today about corporate sponsors and how they make a difference in your film. Well, yeah, let's dive into that. Because I think uh, for a lot of people who've been listening to the show for a while, they're aware of your sponsorships with various places like um, Michelin or, uh, and I don't even know if those are sponsorships or just partnerships or communication. So is there any difference between like when you talked about L'Oreal or these different, are they all the same sort of corporate sponsorships? How, how do we dive into talking about this? Yeah, well, so let me just kind of start by saying back in the very, very, very beginning, I felt like corporate sponsorships would be crucial for us. And I felt like it would be a easy pitch to them because of the halo effect. And the halo effect is basically means if a corporation joins what you're doing and you're you know, doing something for a good cause, it really will make them look good. Uh, and so it is a sales tactic. Like if you join with us, this is going to be good for your you know, profile in you know, the public square. Uh, it's really something you should, should think about. So I tried that. I, started, I made a whole list of everybody that I thought would be good corporate sponsors. And I have a huge spreadsheet. It was, it was people that were typically French American companies and had something to do with, um, you know, sewing or fabric or parachutes or airplanes, you know, anything that is sort of involved intrinsic to our story, uh, you know, plus any companies that were French American, I added them to the list and I tried to begin reaching out to pitch the idea of becoming a corporate sponsor. And what I was thinking of that as is this corporation would come on board, would give us movie to you know, money to make the movie, and we would then give them publication on our website or on our film or however we could. Uh, they would partner with us in public events, things like that. And that's the way I thought about it. And I didn't get anywhere, nowhere. You know, I was hoping United would sponsor us. And we did for a while as a business get a discount with United. Uh, but the tickets were still expensive and the, and the you know, uh, the, it was 10% off, I think, basically. So um, that was all nice, but any business can sign up to do that, really, I think. Um, and then, as fortune would have it, or you know, as God willed it, you can however you want to think about it. Um, David Patterson, sorry, David Chapman, uh, retired from you know foreign affairs, and he took a job at Michelin. 
as their, you know, vice president of military and government sales, I think. And when he was interviewing for the job, he started talking to them about this movie that they needed to see that really would benefit both of their companies. And he, that was in his interview. And he's like, whether you hire me or not, you guys need to see this movie and get involved. Well, he did get hired. And then after he was hired, they came back to him and said, now tell us about this movie again. And so they did, and they brought us in to educate their, do like a seminar for their veterans group, brought us in for a screening um, that paid for the hotels and the flight and all of that. And then they were in talks with us to give us some funding to finish the film and do the film festival run. We made a big uh, corporate like sponsorship pitch that we sent to them explaining why our companies were aligned, our missions were aligned, why it would be good for them, et cetera, et cetera. And we presented that to them. Most corporations have a nonprofit arm of their companies as well, which is, you know, we were pitching it either way. You can either give us money and we will, you know, give you the credit or you can donate to our film. We'll still do the same thing, whatever is better for your company. So they were looking at that and they were thinking about doing it through their nonprofit. And the day that we had our screening and we had made the presentation in the morning about, you know, them coming on as corporate sponsors, uh, the world shut down March 13th, 2020. And once that happened, everything stopped um, for Michelin really for two years. They took it very seriously. They redoubled their efforts on helping the community and things like that. And so, you know, our thing took a back seat. And then on LinkedIn, Virginie Durr saw us posting about our trailer and what we were trying to do. She messaged me on Facebook, which I ignored for quite a while because I don't check LinkedIn very often. Uh, and for whatever reason, a morning before our screening in Beaufort, I checked my LinkedIn messages. She had mentioned that she was a French person from Normandy and she was going to be at the screening. And I was actually looking for French people to be honored at the screening. And so she came, we met. And once she saw the film, she was a hundred percent on board to champion our film in any way she could because she said she's been speaking that message forever but this film finally demonstrated what she's been trying to get across about how important the french-american relationship is and so from that beginning her mission was to get the you know movie on board delta and air france it was to you know have these community screening events where more people could learn about the film and it snowballed from there. So lesson to be learned here is that corporate sponsors are incredibly valuable. But from my perspective, it really does take an inside track champion for your film to be able to push that. Yeah, I think it's that old adage, right, of it's who you know, not what you know. It's really yeah. down to relationships. Wow. It is. It is. And so, you know, I was trying, when I go and try to pitch a movie, hey, can you give me this money? Or, hey, can you support the film in this way? You're trying to get something from people, right? And you're just a salesperson. 
And sometimes you make a sale and sometimes you don't. And people I found were just not really interested in listening to me. Not only that, they wouldn't even take time to watch the trailer or the film. It was just super, super hard. And so eventually there were people that came up to me from different organizations that said, you should go and, you know, I belong to this organization and I really think they would be supportive of what you're doing. You should go talk to them. And I would just flat out say, me talking to them does no good. If you think that this movie is valuable and you think they would benefit, you need to go and talk to them. And, and that was a big thing that I did right um, because I, but it was out of frustration. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to waste my time pitching to anyone anymore because I've learned they won't take my call. But if you are involved in the, you know, organization, you can make them look at the trailer. You can talk to them about the importance of having a screening. So the interesting thing is I would also highly recommend people trying to figure out how to get their film on an airline. Getting your film on an airline has been a game changer for our film because so many people are watching it. I've, I talk to Flo Plana just about every week and he tells me more people are coming over and they've seen the film on Delta. They're coming to Normandy and they now want to hire him to be a tour guide. They now you know, want to see the places that we've mentioned in the movies. Um, and they've found it just by you know, trying to find movies on Delta. That is so incredible. <laughs> and now, the way that the corporate, I mean, the way that you get on an airplane typically is a distributor has to have a relationship with um, the people that, you know, distribute to the airlines. Uh, they have to make that sale for you. Um, and it is sort of this inside network. It's hard to, to get noticed. So again, Virginia made that happen because she knew the right people. And that seems particularly true with um, your film is so location and relationally based that it seems to be, um, you know, it's, it's a major part of the film is all about France and America, right? And that relationship there. And so when you have a transcontinental flight, that's just the perfect spot for it. Um, so do you think it's as valuable for a film that isn't as locationally based? Oh, or absolutely. About? Okay. Think about any anything anybody is going to talk about i mean if particularly in the documentary world everybody is doing a documentary film because they want to educate about a thing whether it's a cause whether it's a political issue whether it's a product whether it's um you know something that most of the world is ignoring that's becoming a really big problem whatever it is in your story there are going to be people that are aligned with your mission and so I do think it is very important to figure that out, you know, figure that out and try to make relationships with people in that industry and start trying to, you know, do this grassroots marketing, make sure you're using LinkedIn because that's where everybody is, you know, they're, they're business people that can support you are on LinkedIn and they're looking and they're watching and they're, you know, connecting there. Um, networking, you know, in those business organizations. So for example, I joined the Chamber of Commerce uh, for the French area of DC. I don't even remember. I'd have to look up exactly what it is. I, I joined, I think for 400 bucks, something like that, just so I could make a relationship with the guy that headed that up. 
and he talked about coming in for a screening and he never watched the trailer never watched the movie i sent him a free link uh but when he saw we were coming to dc he came to the screening after the screening he kept circling my table and everywhere I was. And he, he would catch me for five seconds. And he's like, we're going to screen this at the embassy. I promise you, we're going to follow up. We're going to do this. We're going to, and maybe even, you know, we're going to have one over here. Like people have to see this movie. And he's written me, he's already talked to the ambassador. He wants us to come on Bastille day, you know, and the seed was planted because I did join his organization to try to meet him, you know? So um, you just have to think, I think, that way about your film, because here's the thing. If people you're making this film, you're spending your money on this piece of art. But if nobody sees it, what have you done? Yes, you've done something really hard. But but if no one sees it, did you you know, what's that effort for? And that's the thing, too, is that everyone is competing for eyeballs right now you know it's just like you think of social media is it's just people trying they're posting stuff trying to get in front of your eyes that's all they're trying to do and that's for a split second as you scroll past let alone an hour and a half two hour film to try and convince people to watch that is it's a big ask and when people do it it's actually it means how much they care about it so Mm -hmm. they care about you they care about the relationship it's, you know, whenever, like, <laughs> when uh, Sean and I have made sketches, and people will say, hey, I, I love that sketch you guys made, and it was, you know, 40 seconds, I'm always just like, thank you for watching it, because I know how hard it is to stop for 40 seconds and watch a thing, Yes. and then that's just a sketch on, on you know, <laughs> yes. on, on Twitter or Instagram, yes. you know, it's just, it goes by really quick, and it's, I'm always thankful when people take the time to stop and watch. I always start my screenings and end them by thanking the people because their time being at that event is such a sacrifice. It's such a precious gift um, because time is so precious now. Um, and for people to give that up is just, it's such an honor for me to have an audience there. And there is nothing like watching your film with an audience nothing like that. It's just so incredibly rewarding. You know, there's a whole cottage industry. And I looked at this in the very beginning, you can look it up while we're talking and give a little bit more information about it, um, of of impact producers. And this typically is around a cause, you know, like getting rid of the plastic bottles in our world. Um, And an impact producer, um, you can hire them, they actually are out there Um, they work to create events based around your film and your message to create these corporate sponsorships to make these, you know, impact screenings. And uh, I think it's a super valuable way to go. I ended up becoming my own impact producer and sort of making this happen on my own because I guess I just like to do that. <laughs> well, I, well, how hard can it be? I'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> but it already existed out there. Maybe I'd have made a lot less mistakes if I had hired someone. But yeah, what'd you find in your Googling? Yeah, it looks like um, there's a, quite a few different, um, like there's documentaries about impact producers. There's uh, Doc Society has an impact producers lab. It's all about creating, you know, an experience to impact people about your your thing exactly. and it can also be about apparently uh, implementing a impact strategy 
mm-hmm. is is part of it. Yeah, that's that's really funny. So I've never seen, as far as I'm aware, I've never seen an impact strategy producer or an impact producer go by on the credits. Do they make it into the film in that way? This is a relatively recent, in my understanding, a relatively recent development. Um, as it is more difficult for independent producers to get people to listen to their message and see what they're doing. Or maybe it's that people like Netflix and Amazon, you know, started it. I have no idea how it began, but I just know when I started out, um, I read a lot about that. I knew that I didn't know anybody or have the money to bring anybody on. Um, I did glean some ideas about how to do an event like that just through what I read on the web. And what we've been doing naturally, you know, has been making an impact. You know, we will invite French people, World War II veterans, kids. You know, I have displays of World War II items. We have reenactors there. We we partner with communities, veteran communities in the area to try to use their mailing lists to try to get you know, people to come. Um, All of that is what an impact producer does. And it is well worth it these days, in my opinion, particularly if you like traveling with your film. I like traveling with the film. I like uh, hearing the audiences. I like being in the Q&As. I love meeting with film lovers and Francophiles and things like that. Um, So, either become an impact producer yourself or bring one onto your team. To answer your question, I don't know if they make it into the film. I haven't ever seen it in the credits either. Um, I wonder if it the business model is more like you hire someone, you pay the money, like an event planner, because it really is at the end of the day, an event. It, it seems like it. From what I can find, it says that they're one of the first people that you should consider bringing into your film because they can actually help you sculpt the film to have the most impact for your intended audience. And um, according to this website, um, you do need to carve out budget for them. So I don't think it's exactly like an event planner, but it could be. Yeah, I mean, they do a lot of event planning or working with event planners, but they, yes, they carve the strategy out for how you are going to make an impact with your film. Um, and it's probably much more effective if you hire ones that have experience as opposed to me who's trying to figure (laughs) it out. Yeah. So, you know, this podcast is all about, you know, thoughtfully considering how to partner with corporate sponsors or impact producers to, um, you know, take your film to where people can see it. And, you know, it's no longer just about I mean, you can, you can make a deal with the distributor and hope to get on, you know, iTunes and Amazon prime and all of that, but somebody's still got to do the marketing if you want people to see it. Um, and I guess the question is, do you just want to turn out content, stick it on, you know, the transactional platforms, take whatever income you can get from it and move on to your next project. And if that's your goal, then that, that works. Um, you know, but if you want to make a difference and you want to see people respond to the film and you want to actually begin to create change, um, you know, this alternate way of creating events and doing things like that and interacting with your audience is a very rich and fulfilling one, I'll, I will absolutely say. Well, awesome. That I feel like I've learned something. <laughs> and I, I feel like I normally learn something every podcast we do, but this is like, I just can't believe there's a whole job that I, yeah, I thought I knew quite a bit about filmmaking. I thought I knew quite a bit about that sort of stuff. And I 
didn't even know that an impact producer was a title. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. I need You're to welcome. dig deeper into that. All right. So now I think it's time for our new segment, which is no longer new. DocuView Deja Vu. DocuView Deja Vu. Or the docs we've watched. <laughs> I'll have to make a new jingle for that and change the name. Okay. So Jason, have you given some thought to what you're going to share this week? Yeah. So this is not one particular documentary, but I think it's a very cool uh, thing that I found for people who love documentaries. It's also just a really cool thing that I found for people who like entertainment, particularly free entertainment. Um, this is Zumo.tv. It's X-U-M-O.tv. It's a online uh, AVOD streaming service and they have an entire uh, it's like linear cable kind of it just kind of plays uh, constantly so it, it plays if you're there it plays if you're not there so you kind of have to know like okay I want to watch this thing uh, but they have an entire channel channel 251 uh, about documentaries and so like when I pulled it up earlier they were on Food Inc right now they're doing Scott's Pizza Tours which is about the guy who holds the Guinness World Record for the most uh, pizza boxes he has 1300 pizza boxes in his in his Brooklyn apartment okay. and he pays his rent by uh, going around and giving people uh, tours of various pizza places in New York City. <laughs> and there's a whole documentary about him. And I never would have heard about it unless uh, I found this Zumo documentary channel. So it's xumo.tv and it's channel 251. And we'll put that in our notes. That pizza documentary reminds me of one that has stuck with me for ever and i saw it in chicago at the advertising community shorts uh night where these people that work in advertising but they want to do something else can submit uh, a film and this one film was submitted um and it was about this couple that collects um lottery tickets that they never scratch off and so they have hordes and hordes of the lottery tickets that have just been collected and never scratched. And it's the most bizarre, interesting, <laughs> uh, crazy, like they have these cats that are funny and um and I think these two, this couple are on the spectrum. They're definitely not your typical average Joe and Jean, but they, um, but they have found each other. They love each other and they do this collecting together. And there's this small, tiny little group of other people that they get together and they do a convention once a year or once every five years. I don't remember. And they even wrote a song, a convention song. So I wish I could find it. I've tried to find it. Um, maybe I'll try again, but it was a hilarious, like you think that exists. Really? <laughs> that, yeah. that feels like a really interesting sort of time bomb. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you have just like, you could be rich. <laughs> I know. And certainly, it, it, you know, even if they won $10 on, you know, throughout these millions of unscratched lottery tickets, there are, I mean, it would take them years to scratch through all of the lottery tickets they have. Tell, I mean, hordes. And so, you know, if they were to do that, there would have to be a good amount of money that they would have just from what they've collected. I also feel like they've spent a good amount of money. 
Yes. If they actually have millions, that means they probably spent millions of dollars because I don't think they make scratch off lottery tickets less than a dollar, do they? I know. It's unbelievable. People were funny. So uh, the one I bring to the table today uh, is one of, I remember I was telling Josh Lindsay um, how horrible some of the things were that were happening on the Girl Who Were Freedom. This is before we even started a podcast. And it was just like one tragedy after another. Like it just, I was in a world of hurt about how bad everything was going. And he was like, Christian, have you ever seen uh, Lost in La Mancha? by Terry Gilliam. And I was like, no, never even heard of it. And he's like, well, it is his, and this is the IMDb quote. It is his doomed attempt to get his film, the man who killed Don Quixote off the ground. And so I had watched it in early 2018. And really all I could find was just this lost in La Mancha, which made me feel so much better after I saw this film um and i just it made me laugh it made me realize things could be much worse uh it you know made just blew my mind about some of the things that they went through and uh i learned some things that i should not do so so lost in la mancha was good and he has now finished the film he was trying to make uh the man who killed don quixote in 2018 so uh so you can check those both out uh and see what you think well, awesome. Anything else we need to touch on before we wrap up? So I just want to remind people that joining Patreon is a great way to support us. You get a lot of good extra content, uh, especially if you want to get the tour of the Players Club from David Patterson. Uh, that'll be coming up. And it is just you're on the ground floor of really important stuff that we're doing. So we'd really love your help if you can, you know, even afford five dollars a month. That would be amazing. Um, and then you can rent or buy through streaming uh, the film on our website, thegirlywarfreedom.com through Gumroad. You now can also buy a DVD from our website uh, and you know, that will be sent to wherever you wish. And then you, know, you can join us at the National Infantry Museum next, uh, well, I guess it's going to be on the 25th. I think that is Wednesday when this comes out. So <laughs> I don't know if you'll hear it or not, but, um, but yeah, share the movie with your friends. It really means a lot. We're slowly making some progress. Uh, if you uh, can make a donation, we're still taking donations on our website because we are still trying to pay this movie off. Um, <laughs> so anything that you can do to help would be great. Well, all right. Well, thank you all for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlywarefreedom.com. Or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.